Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back everyone. This episode we've got two tales from Manchester. Now this was originally supposed to be one episode, telling three or maybe four stories, but as per usual my verbosity ran rampant, and now this is the first of a two-parter, with two stories this episode and three or possibly four even stories next episode. But before we launch into all that, a couple of housekeeping type things first. To begin, I'm going to break with a long tradition on this podcast, and I'm going to introduce myself. I've always shied away from doing this because, well, basically I don't understand why anyone would care. But committed as I am to continuing with this podcast and ideally growing it, I'm given to understand that if I want my engagement buzzword things to go in the right direction, people want to know, apparently. Parasocial interactions are all the rage these days, and not just the name of some kind of sci-fi vampire analogue. All I'm really trying to say here, I suppose is that my name is Graham. And to really pull back the curtain, I'm the whole team here at Tales of the British Isles, which I suspect you worked out anyway. But there's no I in Graham, though it also isn't spelt how you probably think it is. But don't spell it with an I. And I've made that incredibly awkward, but now you know. Hopefully by some kind of sympathetic magic, my listeners, having gained the power of my name, they'll be able to use that to make the metrics do the good things. Though I suspect that quite a lot of people who've never listened to this before are turning off right about now. So, anyway, moving swiftly on. Next, thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, who have been very patient and understanding and kind between episodes recently. I'll introduce the latest sign-ups after this episode. Thank you as well to everyone who's left reviews, and in particular to Mug, with two Gs, 24, who left an exceptionally kind review that genuinely made me feel very seen. Okay, so that introduction was awkward for all of us, but let's now jump into today's stories. The theme is Manchester. Really, I've just dragged some tales that happen to be from Manchester, and I'm not sure that much of the city shines through into them. But despite that, I do feel bound to do what I've done on other compilation episodes and give a kind of general non-story overview. But I'm not going to go straight into my ill-informed lecture on the history of Manchester. Instead, we're going to have today's episode in a slightly different format than usual. First of all, we're going to jump straight into a story. After that, we'll have that introduction to Manchester's history. I'll follow that up by the final story of the episode, which will be our first toe dipped into the inky, vast, intimidating depths of our Furian legend. What a place to do it. Then, finally, there'll be a short, inexpert discussion section on the two stories. All of this means proportionally a bit more history and a little less story. But hey, hopefully that's okay. If it's not, well... I'll be very sad, but there's probably an off button on your device. So, without any further ado, let's begin our first story of the day. A little tale I choose to entitle Bizarre Botany at Boggart Hole Clough. 
the city sprawls. A sprawl that hungrily devours farms, woodlands, rivers, lone houses, whole villages, all gobbled up by a process that is practically organic, living. And a process slow enough that on a day-to-day basis, it's barely noticeable. It takes a bite of a rural delicacy here, a hunk of hamlet there. But considered over even a few years, well, the change in the landscape is staggering. Now there are rows upon rows of houses, streets and roads and lanes that interconnect them. There's factories and shops and pubs, churches and schools. For miles and miles around, the land is unrecognisable from what it was just a scant year or two before. That country is gone, and it's never coming back. The distant horizon has been torn away, and in its place brick and steel, tarmac and concrete bloom and flourish. Their seeds spread, and their proliferation continues unabated. But there are rare places where their advance is halted, where swathes of greenery turn them back. Now a few probing paths are snaked in, an iron bandstand sprouts. But on a whole, the trees and the grass, the flowers and the bushes, they stand firm against the encroaching mass of masonry. Not that these parks are any less artificial. The hand of humanity is everywhere within them. They bear almost as little relation to the places that came before the city's expansion as do those streets. The parks are, above all else, places for people to go. But nevertheless, they do stand out as little green oases amongst the red and black and grey. Boggart Hole Clough is one such place. It's definitely one of your less tame variety of parks, a large nature reserve formed of ancient woodlands, crisscrossed with paths and rivers and the ravines that are the cloughs of the name. There's a boating lake with an island in the middle and larger green spaces, playing fields and the like. And there's one of those cafes that looks like a cricket pavilion, which was once the boathouse. On all sides, it's surrounded by Manchester's urban sprawl. But with its very name, it conjures up something of the time before the city. Boggart's Hole Clough. Many, if not all of you, will, I'm sure, be familiar with the general concept of a boggart. A mischievous, aggressive spirit, sprite or goblin, which crops up in various places across northern England. And there is certainly a story of the boggart of this place to be told. Why did the park get its name so? But I'm not going to tell that today. For the first story, we are going to go back in time before the rapacious city had reached that place. But this will not be the tale of the Boggart. Though, don't worry, at some point, I will tell a Boggart's tale on this podcast. By the current release schedule, I estimate it'll be about the turn of the decade, but we'll get there. But now, let's go back in time to when it was all fields around here and ravines, and quaint little country lanes. Our protagonist, or at least our viewpoint character, is George Plant. For a hobby, George Plant is a botanist. Patronymic determinism had a couple of aces in the pocket on this one. But Plant was more than simply that. 
and I'm just going to read you the full description of the man from the words and acquaintance of his. My friend Plant was a firm believer in ghosts, witches and hobgoblins, in the virtue of herbs under certain planetary influences, and in the occult mysteries of Culpepper and Sibley. Those are astrologists and herbalists, by the way. He was entirely self-taught, for had been a great reader, knew something of arithmetic in addition to botany and astrology, and was a dreary-minded wanderer in lonely dells, on moors and heaths, searching after herbs of surpassing virtue, of mysterious growth and concealment, and of wonderful and unaccountable power. Now, I'm generally sceptical of educated male protagonists. I get quite enough of that dreariness in my own life, thank you very much. But, I have to admit, Plant does sound like an interesting kind of guy. So anyway... He'd been out seeking herbs in the evening around Gristlehurst Woods, a place that, coincidentally entirely, also has a very famous boggart. But not the boggart hole clough boggart, even though they're reasonably close. But that's another, another story. And so anyway, Plant was finishing for the day, when the weather took a turn for the worse. Looks like rain, said Plant, to no one in particular, followed up a couple of moments later by... A storm, damn it. But luckily, there was a cottage he knew of, not too far distant, and he made for it. Not because he was the kind of person who would invade people's homes, even in a storm, but because this was a special kind of cottage, where the lady of the house would give honest travellers beer and a bit of food if they wanted it, and those same grateful travellers might leave some money there as they left entirely accidentally. All this came about because, well, you needed a licence to sell alcohol, and licences were expensive. But that wasn't what was happening here, of course. No one was selling alcohol. We simply have a cottage with a generous owner who had lots of guests over who were very carelessly leaving their money around. A few minutes later and Plant was seated in the hush shop, as such places were rather delightfully known. His rain-soaked coat was drying by the welcoming warmth of the fire, and he was feeling pretty good with his mug of ale and rasher of bacon. Aside from the cottage's owner, there were two other men and a definitely not a pub that stormy evening. There was the owner's son, a lanky, quiet, thoughtful-seeming young man, with the unusual name of Bangle and there was a short, slightly older man who it became rapidly apparent was a bird catcher by profession, and who had the only slightly less unusual and possibly onomatopoeic moniker of Chirrup. This being well before having a phone to constantly check, and Plant having no book with him to read, he couldn't help but overhear the conversation of the room's other occupants and be dragged into it. Chirrup was talking all about this wonderful bird he had just failed to capture. A rare, beautiful, unique bird, the like of which he had not seen before, and which had evaded his grasp at the very last moment. Bangle listened intently, asking questions and sighing by turn, and it soon became apparent that he was applying the lengthy, embellished tale to an instant in his own life. Oh, do give over the pair of you! said Bangle's exasperated mother. She was a practical, no-nonsense sort of person, a character you expect might be able to run an illegal drinking house on her own. 
You, Chirrup, I've heard this before, whatever you say, and if this bird of yours exists at all, I reckon it's nowt but a fancy wagtail that you can't catch. <sighs> it's no more a wagtail than you are a dagtail, shot back Chirrup, convincingly. Now, dagtail may actually have another meaning, and I've not tried to look it up because I just prefer to think that this was a really lame comeback. And as for you, Bangummy lad, how rightly do you think you're going to win a bride if you can't speak to her? Your father, God rest his soul, he wouldn't have spent his time sighing, staring mournfully at the chimney breast like you do, pacing back and forth, looking at the chimney breast again, giving another sigh, not helping your mother with the customers. No, when he wanted to win me, he came caught in the proper way, the old way. All full of fire and passion. He came five miles from Affetside, he did, and the door weren't open for him, but you know, he fair smashed it down. Mom, please, whined the embarrassed Bangle, who didn't want to hear about his father's conquest of his mother yet again. Look, lad, even if you aren't a man like him, well, old Limpin Billy has already told you what to do, so you ain't got no excuses. And Plant soon found himself in the conversation with the three of them. He discovered a little more about this object of Bangle's affections. Inevitably, it was some woman who he'd barely talked to, and yet who he'd felt deeply betrayed by when he'd seen her shock horror dancing with another boy at Berry Fair recently. Probably a boy who took an actual effort to get to know her, rather than simply moping around. Hang on, are my sympathies with the mother here? Uh, it's complicated. I mean, obviously, don't take it too far. Knocking down doors that are closed doesn't sound good. But if the signals are there, you've got to try something, I think. You certainly can't be sad about it if somebody else does and gets there, and you just sit around all day talking to people about birds. Anyway... After that occasion, the aforementioned Limping Billy had been consulted. Limping Billy was what is known as a cunning man. A local wise man, a worker of magic. The kind who'll solve all your problems with a complicated set of instructions and a healthy cash payment. Now I don't know whether William approved of his nickname. Whether the limping was a whole part of his brand that he actively encouraged or whether he was deeply hurt whenever people brought it up again and again. But anyway, three grains of fern seed, or else she'll never be yours, Limping Billy had told Bangle. Well, said Chirrup, if all we need is some fern seed, let's go get them. It's not that simple, said Bangle. He told me that fern seed, but one night of the year, the 23rd of June, the eve of St. John's Day. How very regular of them that is. And more than that, it must be a particular fern, the St. John's Fern. And it has to be collected in a specific way, the secrets of which he would only divulge if, well, I made further payments. Now all of this was music to Plant's ears. This was bona fide mystical botany, quite by coincidence his very particular and unusual speciality. Well, it's June already. The Feast of St. John is not too far off at all. And, gents, I just happen to know what must be the finest clump of St. John's fern in all this country. 
So if you can find out from Billy the exact details of how you're meant to pick it to win your woman, well, I'll go with you. There you go, Bangle, said Chirrup. We'll get you your last through perfectly legitimate, non-creepy means. Really? asked Bangle. Yeah, you'll see. It'll be an adventure, lad, said Chirrup, who was clearly just up for getting involved in anything. The friendly pack was made. They agreed to meet again on St John's Eve, having obtained the instructions. And somewhere, the unnamed woman after whom Bangle lusts is enjoying her life, unaware that plans were slowly and surely being drawn up against her. The scene fades on the three men happily downing their ale to the sounds of the rain on the rooftop. Days pass. Limping Billy's palm is crossed with silver and he divulges his secrets. The hands of the clocks go round faster and faster, dates are pulled from calendars and when we join back with the action, it's St John's Eve. Our bold trio has assembled near the place where the St John ferns are clumped. And that place, that place is the tree-lined valley of Boggart Hole Clough. The meaning of the name is not lost upon the men, who were aware of boggarts and the trouble they may cause, and occasionally the rewards they may offer. The sun was setting as they met at the aesthetically pleasing whale-jaw gate that led into the clough. From there they'd have to go past the ancient boggarts farmhouse, where once the creature had resided. Spooky even at midday, it was a crooked place, ivy-clad, all wattle and daub in a timber frame. But they would pass that by. Their eventual destination was an oak tree-ringed glade some halfway up the clough. There, bushes and smaller trees crowded most of the available space. Hazels and ash, brambles, wild roses and holly all gave the place a slightly otherworldly feel in the waning light of the day. And amongst the various uninteresting ferns was the fern that, to the very observant eye, was different This was the specific St John's fern that was fated to see that evening. A paler green, a flatter, broader leaf growing stark upright and fully unfurled. Now aside from their lanterns, each of the men had brought with them the items they had been specifically tasked to bring by Bangle, who had passed on Limping Billy's instructions. Items which were very necessary for the successful conduct of the evening's ritual, which had to be performed in a most specific way. Or else it could go wrong, and then it wouldn't be Limping Billy's fault if you, you know, didn't get the girl. Firstly, it had to be conducted at midnight, dead on, which is why they had met so late in the day. And now, through the gate, down the rough path into the clough, went Chirrup, Plant and Bangle, Three adult men with the names of puppets from a preschool children's TV show. And as they walked through that darkened, wooded place, they began the ritual in the way Billy had instructed. What hast thou? Chirrup asked Plant. With a great seriousness of purpose, Plant produced from his knapsack an earthenware dish. Mine is brown and rough, he intoned. 
And what hast thou? asked Plant of Chirrup. And from his sack Chirrup produced a pewter platter. Mine is bright enough. And what hast thou? the two asked Bangle in unison. Tied with web and wool, mine is deep enough, said Bangle. The young man's voice far firmer, deeper, unwavering than when we had last heard it. And he pulled back his cloak to reveal, hanging from his neck in the centre of his chest. Holy fuck. It was of a different order to the other men's pieces. Bangle was wearing nothing less than a hollowed-out human skull. The cap had been half-sawn off, but it was kind of flapping up and down like a coffee-pot lid, adhered by a leathery piece of scalp. Now, it wouldn't have been immediately obvious to the slightly horrified observers, but the interior of the grim necklace had been stuffed full of clay and moss, mixed with Bangle's own blood, and it hung around him by strands of undyed wool and unbleached yarn. Oh, and it's also got this, said Bangle, proudly displaying a tress of raven-black hair hanging from the macabre talisman. It's her hair, guys! One of Limping Billy's crone associates took it from her. Because apparently Limping Billy just has crone associates who don't mind stealing hair. That's the way Limping Billy rolled. Bangle's companions stared. There was a pointed silence for a good thirty or so seconds. Collecting fern seed itself hadn't seemed particularly ominous. A platter and an earthenware dish likewise, even if it was midnight. But this, this put a whole other darker bent on the whole exercise. It was apparent now that they weren't just messing around. This wouldn't be a walk in the park. The park not, of course, existing for a few hundred years. Okay, guys, do you like it then? asked Bangle. It will do came a voice from some unspecific area of the undergrowth. So quiet, you might think you had imagined it. Plant and Chirrup looked around, trying to be unsure if they'd actually heard it. But Bangor was the brave one now. He was the one who was going to get his love after all. He held up his lantern. Forward now. If that was the spirits talking to us, well, we wouldn't want to disappoint them by turning back. Would we? And with that renowned, foolhardy pluck of the English, they pressed on. The atmosphere changed as they went. All became still and silent. Not a sound of nighttime insects, no rustles from the underbrush, no moan of the wind. As quiet as the grave. Through gaps in the foliage above them, stars could be seen, and the silvery light of a still moon illuminated their way to make the lanterns almost unnecessary. Each man became intimately aware that they were the only ones moving, and soon even the menacing hoot of an owl would have been a welcome respite from that eerie, ominous hush.
Just before they reached the glade, Chirrut recalled something, and he asked in a whisper, Who has the forked hazel rod? You know, the one to shake the fern. Trying as he did to ignore the sense of wrongness suffocating him, the cold sweat that was forming on his brow. Oh, damn it, said Bangle. I thought you had it, said Plant. Well, said Chirrup, well, he did say we couldn't touch it without it, so, you know, we wouldn't want to get that wrong, so I guess we'd better turn back. Wasted journey, but hey, never mind. (sighs) No, no, said Plant. In for a penny and all that. I can sort this. And he drew a knife, stepped into some moonlit bush, and soon he was back with a freshly cut hazel rod in hand. And by about now they were there, the oak circle. And there too was the St John's fern, evident only to those who knew how to look. That's it, said Plant, trying to adopt a workmanlike manner, but his confident words seemed somewhat smothered by the all-enveloping silence. They got to it. Plant knelt, held his earthenware dish directly under the fern, with Chirrup positioning his silver platter beneath that. And finally Bangle carefully took the blood and earth-packed skull from around his neck and placed it on the ground, directly beneath both the other men's objects. Plant intoned his words. Good St John, this seed we crave. We have dared. Shall we... Have? Good St. John, this seed we crave? We have dared, shall we have? Ugh, I'm sure he didn't say it like that, by the way, but why then? Eat your heart out. And a voice responded with a truer rhyme. Now the moon is downward starting, moon and stars are all departing. Quick, quick, shake, shake, he whose heart shall soonest break, let him take. There was no doubting it now. They looked frantically, and for an instant saw a figure in a robe a few feet away. And with the rod of hazel, Bangle shook the fern. The seeds fell into the earthenware dish, and it smashed into shards. The pewter plate melted, and the skull, the skull, shrieked. Light poured forth from its sockets and dazzlingly illuminated the cloth all around them as though it was a summer's day. They were surrounded. Beautiful, ethereal women sung enchanting songs. Bright-eyed children happily skipped and trooped through the valley. Men dressed in rich finery walked arm in arm. A glorious, peaceful vision. They staggered to their feet, gazed at the scene all around them in wondrous, stupefied astonishment, and then made a mistake. God bless, uttered Bangle instinctively. And there was not a moment's pause after that unfortunate ejaculation when there came a tremendous crashing and splintering sound from all around them, at first as though the trees in the clough were being torn up and pulled apart, and then, then as though the sky above them was cracking. 
Shapes jumped up from the bushes and thickets all around, misshapen, horrible figures, all sharp, jagged angles, and yet as one tried to fix one's gaze on them, they seemed to flow like tar, and their attention was clearly focused on the intruders. And the men did the only sensible thing they could. They ran. Plant dashed through the undergrowth, sprinting with all the power and speed he could muster, oblivious to any lacerations as he smashed through branches and thorns, not stopping for an instant, nor paying any heed to his companions. And indeed he was soon split up from them, but there was no time to look for them, for behind him came a great roar and crashing, the sound of a terrible something or somethings bounding after him, chittering and howling they pursued him. In the distance he saw that old boggard house, and fearful as it had been before, the familiar sight of something human now seemed like an anchor of normality, and he made his way towards it as though it were a sanctuary, not slowing his pace for an instant as tendrils snaked from the bushes all around him. He took a great leap over the brook, and to his relief, a few seconds later, the sounds were growing more distant behind him. The ragged breath fair torn from his body, he slowed slightly, and risked a turn. There, back on the other side of the brook, were the creatures. Tangled mishmashes of men and beast, monstrosities that were neither. They wailed and bellowed and gnashed their teeth, but didn't seem to be pursuing over the flowing water. And almost immediately, he bitterly regretted having looked. With last drops of his sanity, he turned and he fled. Later he found he'd arrived back at home. His body and mind were almost wrecked by the effort. He had no memory of how he got there, and he fell into a nightmarish fever for several days, shifting in and out of consciousness, screaming in his sleep. But slowly, he did recover, and as soon as he was physically able, he sent for word of his companions. Chirrup, it seemed, had been found on the moor, chasing birds, ranting and raving unintelligibly. And a little later, when Plant went to visit him, he found him to be totally insane, no trace of recognition in the madman's eyes. Plant knew that the chirrup that he had met was never coming back. He discovered that Bangle had fared slightly better. The timid young man who had to be bullied into action by his mother was no more, for with a grim determination Bangle had hung on to the skull, and having fled, he'd actually carried out the plan. Well, what was the point of it all otherwise? he asked Plant. Of course I had to. And he enthusiastically and wildly related to Plant how he had fled over hedges and ditches, and the skull had followed him, flying through the air, gibbering and cackling all the way. The image should have been an absurd one, should have made Plant laugh out loud at the sheer ridiculousness of a flying skull. A low-budget pantomime effect, even those days but instead it caused memories of the recent horror to rise again within him. 
He shuddered and felt faint, tried to put it out of his mind. But every time he closed his eyes, he would see either the skull lighting up or the sight from across the brook. But when I got far enough away, explained Bangle, whose demeanour seemed now permanently manic. Well, then that life that was in it, no, let's not call it life, that evil animating magic. It seemed to go all out of it. The skull dropped to the floor, and I knew the seeds were there in it. My seeds. So I took them. He'd taken the seeds. He'd reburied the skull at the crossroads he's originally taken it from. Huh, said Plant at that, almost laughing at himself for not wondering before where the skull had come from. And you know what, Plant? Do you know the best bit? She came to me, just like he said. She loves me, Plant. She loves me. We are to be wed. It was true. The spell had worked, and the poor young woman's mind was apparently no longer entirely her own, and she had fallen hard for this young necromancer in the making. But there never was to be a wedding. Three months later, Plant had left the area, but he heard the news that Bangle had died. He wasn't surprised. Was it from the strain of it all? Or had something caught up with him one terrible night? Plant would never know. And the woman, the unnamed woman who had been so unfortunate to become the object of Bangle's affections, she attended his funeral as a heartbroken, weeping mourner. Plant himself took all of this as a sign, and he took a different turn in his life. He stepped back from the wilderness, the old world. He involved himself in the city, in progress, and soon found his energy and attitude a perfect fit for radical politics. He would help make a new modern world that was better for those who were suffering under the harsh industrialization. He married, had a few good years, until one day he suddenly disappeared, leaving his wife and his new political comrades behind. Some said he left for the continent, others that he'd attracted too much attention from the authorities, but none of them ever saw him again. And what, you might well ask, what happened to Limping Billy, who was, after all, the one who orchestrated all of this, the sinister puppet master? And I can't tell you, I'm afraid. A large part of me wants to concoct a revenge fantasy where Bangle's mother and Bangle's magically impelled wife-not-to-be team up to take this dangerous, cunning man down. But if that happened, there's no record of it. And there's every chance that Limping Billy continued to live a long and happy life. And in fact, with his knowledge of the magical arts, well, maybe he's even still alive today. And as for Boggart's whole clough and its overworld denizens, both those enchanting and those spine-chillingly terrifying, if they aren't one and the same, well, as I said in the introduction, in all this time, while the city has taken great chunks of land as its own, the place at Boggart Hole Clough has been left somewhat alone, which is probably just a coincidence. So, if you've got a skull handy, an unrequited lover and a couple of mates with ridiculous names, you could almost make a trip there one St John's Eve, 23rd of June. 
though I don't advise it. In fact, if you're in that situation, don't do any of that. Get on OkCupid and invite somebody to go for a day trip to the Clough with you. Get an ice cream from the cafe, tell them a story. It might be the start of something beautiful. And that's that. And so, as I said, slightly different episode format. One story down, and now let's take a break and look at our subject. And by that I mean, here's a few minutes of disgustingly oversimplified ramblings about the definitely easily condensable history of Manchester. The unofficial and heavily contested Capital of the North. I'll get letters about that one. Now today, Manchester proper is the largest city in the north of England, home to 550,000 people. And if you take into account the Greater Manchester region, nearly 3 million people live there. It doesn't really rival London, but it's the nearest thing that the North has got. Now, the rest of us in the North obviously hate it. That is, unless we're playing the traditional English game North versus South and the Midlands doesn't exist, when all of us Northerners are firmly on the side of Manchester against any Southerners. Now, to a much greater extent than many other cities, Manchester is made up of lots of smaller places smushed together, still all retaining some sense of their own identity. Salford is the example par excellence, because Salford is an entire actual city which butts right up against Manchester city centre, and you could easily wander into Salford and still think you were in Manchester city centre, which you kind of are. When we covered London, we discussed how old that city was, but Manchester is a very modern city by UK standards. Yes, the area has been inhabited for a very long time, which will crop up in the next story, but mostly it's been a few small towns and villages. It started to get really big in the 18th century, and absolutely massive in the 19th, getting official city status in 1853, which was quite a few decades after it was definitely a city. So, it's a very modern city. But it's also the first modern city. And by that, I really mean the first modern city. Anywhere. Now, I'm aware that that statement can be disputed, and academics can convincingly argue that the very idea of a modern city is fundamentally flawed, incoherent, meaningless. But what I mean is that Manchester, in many ways, laid the foundation of what came after all over the globe. Because it was a city that was built for the first time around powered manufacturing machinery of the type which came out of the Industrial Revolution. And of course, it was built around the people who worked that machinery. It was a new kind of city. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people working in mills and factories, producing goods on a previously unimaginable scale, a capitalist industrial city. There's a saying from the 19th century, what Manchester does today, the rest of the world does tomorrow. And it's not entirely an exaggeration. In many ways, the complete transformation that factories and industrialisation have had on global society starts right here in Manchester. But it doesn't do that in a vacuum, of course. Manchester achieves this dubious honour of the first industrial city as part of the largest empire the world has ever known. An empire that spreads brutality, misery and downright evil in an awful scar right across the globe the effects of which also shape all of our lives today. And Manchester and his growth are intimately linked 
with this global system. The city was known as Cottonopolis for a while, for much of the first wave of industrialization was built around innovative ways to process cotton. And the economic model of cotton was built on enslaving, and in the process of course murdering, vast numbers of people. Cotton was grown in British colonies in the Caribbean and in North America, in both cases very much picked by slaves. It crossed the Atlantic Ocean where it made its way to Manchester by networks of canals and early railways that were built across Lancashire. Tremendous feats of modern engineering that were pretty hell for those who actually had to build them, many of whom didn't survive the process. Now, the mills and the factories encouraged urbanisation of a type never seen before. People flocked to Manchester for work, and there they had to toil in brutal conditions for little reward, risking maiming and death from the dangerous machines, living in cramped conditions that proved to be a boon to awful diseases, and generally being exposed to a whole host of particularly unpleasant conditions caused by modernisation and all the kind of work that came with it. And all of this made a very small amount of men very rich indeed, and played a not-incidental part in ushering in the world we have today. But kind of like a Pandora's box, within Manchester too was born much of that which sought to temper the worst excesses of all of this. Manchester does have a long connection with left-wing movements, The work of Engels, and to a lesser extent Marx, can be found deeply rooted in the terrible conditions that they found in Manchester. The trades union movement has its roots in the city, and in the 19th century it became very associated with the Anti-Corn Law League. Earlier still saw the Peterloo Massacre, which has kind of achieved a semi-mythological status. At this event, protesters for parliamentary reform were attacked and in some cases murdered by the police, and it still stands out as a formative event in the development of UK parliamentary history. So, in Manchester grew both industrialisation and the resistance to its worst excesses. And, for good or ill, these have been a template for how quite a lot of humanity has lived for the past 200 years or so. Now, Manchester today is not so much of an industrial city. In common with many cities in the UK, and indeed across the industrial West, it's gone through a process of de-industrialisation. In that time, it's become a bit of a beacon for gay culture. It's home to the longest-running soap opera in the world, and probably the most famous fictional pub at that. It's got a good deal of modern musical heritage. I promised myself I wouldn't say Manchester, but, you know, Manchester and the bits before and after. So, in that way, it's a city not unlike other UK cities. But it still retains an outsized international influence. In some part, this reflects its history. Go to Australia or South Africa, unless you're already there, of course, and you'll find you can buy Manchester in shops, where it basically means linen bedding. But Manchester's also retained this international appeal because of a more modern development which definitely needs touching upon when we're talking about the city. Now, when I've travelled and mentioned I'm from England, people often try to find common reference points, and there's a handful that often crop up. The Queen, understandably. Mr Bean, somewhat more unexpectedly, but the global appeal of languageless physical comedy is apparently not to be underestimated. But a great many people will say something along the lines of, Ah, England! Manchester United. 
and the appeal of Man U has certainly kept international recognition for Manchester as a city at a higher level than, well, probably any other English city outside of London. Globally, Man United is probably the most popular team of the most popular sport in the world, with numbers of fans estimated to range from the mere 140 million up to 1.1 billion, or one in seven people alive on the planet today. This is, of course, depending on who you trust in what I will admit is a highly speculative exercise in statistics. But in any case, it's some seriously big numbers. And at this point, I should probably mention that Manchester City doesn't exactly do badly for itself either, certainly in England, and internationally as well, though to a lesser extent than Man U. If, by the way, you were to Google... Manchester Legends. Not, of course, that I use research methods as basic as that. <laughs> no, 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 I do. You will get a lot of stories about football and footballers, and none about dragons and ghosts and, you know, the stuff we're looking for. And unfortunately, there's no folklore story behind the name The Red Devils. You know, maybe a young lad could challenge Satan to a game of football or something. But no, sadly, that is not the case. Well, I've certainly prattled on enough now. Um, I don't know whether that was interesting. It didn't have many jokes, and there's so much more I could say. Hopefully this has given you some kind of perception of the city, though. Of course, no idea of what it really looks and feels like, but such is the limitation of this medium. Do go visit if you're able. It's a great place on all kinds of levels, and you'll definitely find something that you enjoy. Probably. Unless maybe you like, I don't know, mountains. Not many of those. Right. And without any attempt at a meaningful link, let's depart from modern Manchester, even 19th century Manchester. Let's turn the clocks back well before Plant entered his strange other world, well before Manchester could be called a city, back to its very dim, distant and remotest past. Manchester has been inhabited for a very long time. Yes, its heyday as a significant city would come late when compared with the great medieval cathedral cities, but nevertheless, just slightly offset from the modern-day city centre, across from the Science and Industry Museum, can be found a partial reconstruction of the Roman fort that stood there nearly two millennia ago. It is for this fort, Mamusium, that Manchester eventually came to be named, From here, Roman soldiers from across the empire dominated the Britons in the lands around them. And for a couple of hundred years, the empire from Italy ruled these lands. But like the Rum and Ozymandias, this didn't last forever. And eventually the Romans were all gone. Okay, so now we've gone back that far, let's wind the tape a few hundred years forward from there. Watch everything speed up on screen and... Oh, we've gone too far. Right, okay, rewind. (laughs) Look at that. The Vikings are helpfully pulling all the fire out of those monasteries with their torches and then they're walking backwards onto the longships out to sea they go. You're facing the wrong way, guys. This is a great way to watch history. Okay, okay, right, just about here. Stop and play. Now, according to our legend, the Saxons have very recently started to arrive in the country. Originally, they were invited in as mercenaries to help the Britons fight the Picts and the Gales, 
and this worked fine, right up until the point that the Saxons looked around at the people who had money and land but were paying them to defend that money because they were too weak to defend it themselves. And like many mercenaries before them, well, cogs started to turn. Since then, relations between the Saxons and the Britons had somewhat deteriorated. And if it wasn't for the fact that the Britons had recently gained a king of epic mythological proportions and his creepy wizard advisor, everything would be going really badly for them now. Rather than just quite badly, which it still was. Tarquin was a Saxon. That Roman fort in Mamusium, it's Tarquin's now. He's done it out, given it a lick of paint, and, well, quite a lot more, actually. He's completely and kind of disastrously overhauled it, with no respect to the traditional architecture of the surrounding area. He's ripped out most of the old furnishings and entirely replaced it, so that what we have now is kind of a very stereotypical castle. It's got a dungeon, it's got turrets, it's got crenellations and ramparts, and maybe he's even found a place to stick a drawbridge on it. Honestly, he should have just started from scratch, grand designed it all for the care he showed to the original fort. But anyway, it was Tarquin's. Sir Tarquin, actually, for he was a knight, and knights are sirs. And right now we're going to stop making any references to real history and how exactly it meshes with the story that we're telling, because, well, it doesn't really. So, Sir Tarquin. Tarquin had a problem. It's a problem that affects many of the better off in the world, those with some income to spare, and sometimes, more tragically, those without any. For Tarquin was a committed and obsessive collector. And I think that behaviour is understandable to many people. To give you a bit of an insight here into myself, helps that parasocial relationship vampire, I'm here in this room surrounded by a fair number of books which I'm certain, no, I can guarantee I'm only getting them because I'm going to read them someday, obviously. Ooh, is that a load more books I ordered impulsively, delivery person from non-specific online shop? What a surprise! Oh, thank you so much. See you the same time tomorrow, then. Cheerio! It's tea towels for some, football stickers for others, records, warhammer models, sewing fabric, all very popular. Houseplants are a big one recently, and actually, these are perhaps the most directly comparable to Tarquin's collection, as being living things, they bring with them additional complications. A Magic the Gathering card or a stamp can sit around unused for years, no matter how many you have. But the more houseplants you have, the more care is required to keep them alive. There's some kind of upper limit to how many you can maintain there. And Tarquin was discovering that as it was with houseplants, so was it with his collectibles. Knights of the Round Table. They were just so damn addictive and kind of Moorish. They'd bring themselves straight to him for reasons best known to themselves get all angry with him in a cute type of way, and then, well, what else was he supposed to do when they attacked him? The knights would charge, weapons drawn, and in two shakes of a lamb's tail, Tarquin would have them trussed up like a turkey, and was then adding another knight to his collection. 
I imagine that there were a set of long-suffering servants at the castle. Every time Sir Tarquin came back, Sir, really? Another one? This is a pre-modern society. Do you have any idea of the sheer logistics required in keeping this many people alive? Can't you just, you know... And the servant makes stabby-stabby motions. You know, a couple of them did die after you forgot to feed them anyway. Well, no, they're mine. The more the better. No stabby-stabby, you. Don't you touch them. I can stop any time I want, you know. This is perfectly maintainable. Oh, you can, can you, sir? So tomorrow, when you go out of the castle to survey your lands, do a bit of hunting, you will not come back with another knight of the round table, then. No, no, I didn't say I wanted to stop, I said I could stop. That's very different. You're not the boss of me, that's not how it works. If I want a knight of the round table, I can have a knight of the round table. Sir, you already have 59 knights of the round table. Well, actually, this one here makes 60. 60 knights, just chained up in the dungeon. Do you possibly need this other one for? Well, you see, this one, this one's actually quite rare because he's still got his shield with his crest on it. They're more valuable when they've got their shields, you know. It's got this cute little bear on it and everything. Rawr. The tied-up knight tried to look as indignant about this treatment of his family symbol as he could considering his circumstances. The servant rolled his eyes, does his best Jeeves impression. <sighs> Very good, sir. Now, at about the time that this exchange was happening, somewhere not too distant, Sir Lancelot was riding out to adventure, along with his cousin and similarly subaquatic childhood friend, Sir Lionel. Now, you'll likely know a bit about Sir Lancelot. His greatness at everything, his valour, his love for the king, and in a different way, his love for the queen. And then, you know, Cacaldry. The lake previously hinted at, and maybe lots more. But this is not really the time to go heavy into the backstory or into general Arthurian legends more broadly here, because there's far more content there than this podcast has covered in its entirety so far. So, for now, you should just be content in knowing that Lancelot is a top-level knight of the round table, and that he is currently having non-specific generalised adventures essentially wandering the countryside and hoping that him just being a knight and charging around would cause stuff to happen, which it did tend to. And as for Lionel, well, Lionel has some big sidekick energy. A couple of days of riding and the dynamic duo found themselves in a large forest, and Sir Lancelot found himself feeling rather sleepy. Though it was only just afternoon, the sun was hot, they'd been riding since the early hours, and good sleep is very important for maintaining the title of swoleless knight in all the land. They stopped under an apple tree, tied up the horses, and... You don't mind keeping watch, do you, Lionel? Oh, no, not at all. I'll do a great job, said Lionel, pathetically desperate to please. Good night, said Lancelot, and, I suppose... Good night, because I'm going to sleep, though it's day, but you're a good night, you see? <laughs> Thank you, replied Lionel.
and Lancelot put his helm behind his head as a pillow, which sounds awfully uncomfortable, but he was a badass, and very soon he was loudly snoring away. And back to Sir Tarquin. A couple of days had passed, and indeed he was out again. Now he'd promised himself he wasn't going to go looking for any more Knights of the Round Table. But, you know, if some happened to just cross his path, well, no one could blame a man for that, could they? Surely. So he was just having a ride through this forest of his, looking around hopefully, and... There. He couldn't believe his luck. Those were definitely knights. Three of them on horses. Oh yes, this was the good stuff. Immediately Tarquin spurred his horse to a full gallop. He started singing. I'm gonna be the very best, like no one ever was. Now, the knights of the round table spotted Tarquin at about the time he started the charge. He cut an impressive figure. He was far bigger than the average man, and his dexterous scaled to match. His armour and weapons were of the finest quality, and it was evident just from his bearing that his fighting skills were tremendous. The three unnamed knights of the round table, well, it was true that they had numbers on their side. But what these three lacked in martial prowess, they made up for in an ability to realistically assess their own abilities. And so, to a man, they turned around their horses, and they fled. Switch back to Lionel, who's standing attentively in the shade of the tree next to the snoozing Lancelot. And then there's sound approaching. Lionel cups his ear dramatically. That was hoofbeats. Lots of hoofbeats. And was that shouting? They're getting closer, getting faster. He could see them now. Three mounted knights burst through the trees almost right in front of them. Doppler affected themselves past him with a whoosh were away, and a split second later came a fourth rider, clearly in pursuit of the others. Lionel turned his head to watch the night pass, and in the distance he could just about make out the scene as Tarquin caught up with the knights, knocked first one to the ground, and then the other two in quick succession. Lionel could just watch in a kind of stupefied horror as he realised it was knights of the round table that Tarquin was now lifting off the floor with an unnerving ease and he was binding them to his horse, singing all along. Every challenge along the way, with courage I will face. Lionel looked down at Lancelot, who still slept soundly. He hadn't given any explicit instructions. It would be a shame to have to wake him. Lancelot, Lancelot would probably expect Lionel to be able to handle this sort of thing himself, right? And when Lionel did handle it, well, all those captured knights would be very pleased. Lancelot will be proud of him. This was his chance to shine. And so, with a great fury, he made off at full speed. Approximately 45 seconds after Lionel caught up with Tarquin, well, 
the Nightcatcher was adding a fourth prone knight to his collection and wondering how exactly he was going to explain all of this when he got home. Now I said I wouldn't go deep into Arthurian legends, but this whole sequence has kind of made me slightly reconsider how I view Arthurian knights. I realise I've been picturing them too much like a small, select, elite group of heroes, an extended adventuring party. But here we've got tens of them being taken down by one man, and this isn't an event that's big enough to draw Arthur's attention apparently. Lionel and Lancelot kind of stumble upon it. It feels like this should not have been quite so easy for an opponent like Tarquin to do, and it certainly shouldn't have slipped under the radar. Reflecting on it, I've really fundamentally misunderstood the structure and hierarchy of the round table here, and especially quite how many knights of the round table there were. It's kind of like a huge firm, really, where you can just kind of disappear because there's so many people. I kind of assume that either the round table was a football stadium sized table, or more likely that it was just a symbol, because they certainly couldn't all get a place at it. Hell, these guys at the bottom of the pyramid, they'd probably never even seen the table. And you know, all this really smacks of minions. In the original sense, I mean those yellow abominations. Well, forget about them. Minions or drones. It seems that there's a layer of Arthurian knights who are simply low-level mooks who the bad guys can presumably use for the purposes of levelling up. Poor, unfortunate henchmen knights droves of them. But of course, not all the knights were low level. Lancelot woke up shivering. It had grown cold. He must have been asleep for longer than he'd intended. He looked around and he was alone. Lionel was gone, along with Lionel's horse. Fortunately, his own mount was still close by. Hmm... Lancelot's nightly senses were tingling. This felt awfully like the beginning of an adventure. Lancelot had been riding for a while now, this way and that. He found himself in a particularly barren bit of land. A bit of land that, many centuries hence, would become some fine Manchester suburb, but which right now was eerily deserted. Nothing moved. What vegetation there was was dried out and seemed oddly lifeless. This, this was a good sign. He was getting close. And then, there, there was a beautiful woman. Bam! Straight out of nowhere, smack bang in the middle of the wilderness. She was really beautiful. He couldn't look at her without his heart stirring with, quote, admiration and delight. And I bet those weren't the only things stirring. Yeah, I went there. That's what she said, etc. Now Lancelot was 100% prepared for this sort of eventuality. It happened to him a lot. Oh, brave Sir Knight, famed Sir Lancelot, bold Sir Lancelot, honourable, true Sir Lancelot, Sir Lancelot of prestigious strength, the mightiest knight that e'er were mitten. 
Okay, you're laying it on a bit thick here, you wilderness wandering winsome woman. Get to the point. Oh, wondrous warrior, you have entered a place of great peril, for the castle of the giant knight Sir Tarquin is hereabouts, and he is taking captive a great many of your comrades in his foul dungeon. He has beaten them with fawns, and purely due to logistical complications, some of them have even died. Will you topple the troublesome tyrant Tarquin, restore this land to health, and free the many, many captured knights? Lancelot assimilated this information, considered, sighed, shook his head. Well, Lionel, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into. Okay, enticing enigmatic exposition enunciator, I will, of course, deal with this Sir Tarquin. And he took the lady up onto his horse so she could give directions. Unlike a medieval satnav, she did just that. To the river, which is now about where Deansgate Station stands. And from there, the refurbished castle was very visible indeed. The mysterious woman, who was almost certainly magical, they flocked to Lancelot like flies to shit, those magical women. They really did. She pointed to a tall tree, but a stone's throw from the castle. Swaying shields hung from its branches, giving it the appearance of some kind of outsized cot mobile and every now and then they'd knock together gently, like discordant wind charms, making the only sound in this place. Look, Lancelot, lordly liberator of languishing locked away l- Okay, that's quite enough alliteration, now it's getting tricky. I see it, I see it. Lancelot dismounted. Hanging low than all the shields was a great copper basin and inscribed upon it were these words. Who value of his life not a whit, let him then this basin hit. Hmm, I see, I see, it's a challenge. Lancelot was stumped. Clearly, this would summon Tarquin. That much was evident. But if he hit it, did that mean that he didn't value his life? No, no, he did, he just wasn't scared of Tarquin. But hitting it seemed to be a kind of clever verbal trap. If he hit it, he was saying either that he thought Tarquin would win, or that he didn't value his life. And he loved his life. Ugh, this was frustrating. Ugh, it was making him so angry. And Lancelot's spear came down hard on the copper basin. Again and again, and many great clangs rang out over the area that would one day be Castlefield. Eventually, Sir Lancelot stopped. In the time that he had been banging away, his companion had gone. Possibly, she had simply walked away. But more likely, she had taken a less common route. This also happened to Lancelot all the time. Despite all the noise he had made, there still seemed to be no response from the castle. Look, I don't care about my life, Sir Lancelot shouted. I mean, I do, but I want to fight you because I know that you're bad, so just come out and let me have at you is what I'm saying. And nothing. After a while, he got back on his horse, rode around the castle for a bit, looked up at the fortress walls, but still nothing stirred. 
Eventually he returned to the tree with the shield chimes and the basin, was considering his next move, when, in the distance, he finally saw a great cloud of dust rising. Sir Tarquin was on his way. He really was big, and his horse was big. Not a giant, Lancelot had probably seen giants, Top tier knight of the round table and all goes with the territory, and Tarquin wasn't quite one of those. But you could understand why those who'd led more sheltered lives might say that he was. Lancelot waited. As Tarquin got closer, he called out, Apologies, heard you wanting to end your life and all, but unfortunately I just ran into this. He indicated a sorry looking knight of the round table, bound and fastened to his horse, and I knew I shouldn't, but I thought, hey, just the one, to take the edge off, you know. And then, well anyway, I'm here now, for you. As Lancelot was half listening to Tarquin, he noticed that the bound knight was trying very hard not to let Lancelot see his face. But this wasn't really practical in his current predicament. Sir Gaheris, is that you? It is, isn't it? No, don't look away, I know it's you. Oof, Lionel I can understand, but you, come on. Sir Gaheris had the decency to look shamefaced, and gave as much of an apologetic shrug as the ropes allowed. Okay, said Lancelot, this stops now. Your reign of terror targeted very specifically at the Knights of the Round Table. It ends here, today. That is what you all say, said Tarquin and he charged. And Lancelot, for his part, charged right back at him. Spears were lowered, and both men hit their targets, dehorsing them both. And Tarquin and Lancelot jumped up, recovered, drew swords, and then they rushed at each other. Blades met. On and on they battled, each man looking for an advantage. Blows were parried, blows glanced off armour, blows hit and did wounds and both men bled, but neither went down. An epic battle it was, and any spectators would have been surely wowed at the dazzling display of martial prowess, attacks and feints, stroke and counterstroke, strength and dexterity that the seemingly equally matched Tarquin and Lancelot demonstrated. There was style, there was control, there was damage, and there was aggression. No word on what happened to Sir Gaharis in this, by the way. Was he just kind of strapped to that horse that was waiting around? Had he fallen on the floor? Maybe. He's not very important. But the fight? The fight is. Back to that. It's still going on. It was still going on some two hours later, by which point our hypothetical observers had gone from saying ooh and ah at every swing of a blade to being thoroughly bored by the whole thing and wondering how much of a social faux pas it would really be to leave early. Maybe they could fake some kind of mobile phone call to make it look 
like it was okay to the others around them. Oh no, what's that? The children are on fire? Again? Oh goodness, I'll be right there, of course, darling. Ashamed to miss the end of this fight I'm at, but... Then, you know, getting up with a performative. Kids, who'd have them, am I right? To everyone around them. You know, I know what I'm describing here, but this might be quite a British problem, I realise. Anyway, on the fight went, and even with the heroic levels of stamina and epic physical fitness of the two combatants, they were both beginning to tire somewhat from the fray. Okay, okay. Lancelot held up a hand and bent over, panting. The international symbol of, let's take a breather, just for a moment. And a relieved Tarquin took the opportunity to do the same. Okay, yep, fine. Whew. Look, Sir Knight, you fight with exceptional vigour. I'll give you that. I tell you what. I think you probably believe me to be dishonourable and all, but look, you've done enough. I'll free all the knights, every one of them, they can go back to the round table. And we'll call this a draw. Okay, said Lancelot. But, continued Tarquin, one little itty-bitty condition. Right, what's that then? That you tell me your name. That's it? Yes, that's it. Okay, well, my name is... You see, said Sir Tarquin, there is but one knight in all of this land that I could not give this deal to, so I just want to check you aren't him first. He's really bad. You think I'm bad, but this guy, this guy is worse. Uh, So what's his name? asked Lancelot. No, no, you tell me first, not falling for that one. Clever, clever, I'll grant you, but no. What's your name? But how do I know that you're going to tell me the real name? said Lancelot. What reason would I have to lie to you? Look, look, okay. On the count of three, you say your name, and I'll say the name of the really bad knight, and they won't be the same, and we can agree to call this one a draw. Okay? Okay, I suppose. One, two, three... And inevitably, Sir, Sir Lancelot, Lancelot of, the lake. of the lake. Oh, for fuck's sake. Lancelot rolled his eyes. You! You slew my brother! Did I? Oh. Of course you did! You know you did! Sir Carrados, you slew him at Shrewsbury! Lancelot looked genuinely nonplussed. Big guy in armour at the Dolorous Tower. Honestly, mate, I think we've got one of those, but for me it was Tuesday type situations going on here, said Lancelot, and shrugged apologetically. Newly revitalised with rage, Tarquin charged again and swung his mightiest blow yet with the power to chop straight through the largest oak in all of Christendom. And Lancelot swiftly sidestepped. Whoa, whoa! As his blade connected with nothing at all, it then headed on a trajectory straight into the earth, and Tarquin toppled. Lancelot didn't hesitate. He reached down, tore off Tarquin's helmet, and brought his own sword down with a healthfully powerful force. Tarquin's head was cleaved straight from his body, and both parts of the deceased knight 
soon made contact with the floor. After that, there was just the keys to get from the body. The servants at the castle were probably reasonably relieved when Lancelot and Gaharis came to call. Yeah, take them, take them, we've got no use for them. They're all yours, mate, if you really want them. The captured knights were ever so grateful and told Lancelot how wonderful he was. I told you he'd come to save us, said an excited Lionel. I told them, Lancelot, I said, today's going to be the day. I said, you're going to be the one who saves me. The captured knights who had listened to Lionel's hastily composed songs on Lancelot's imminent coming to save them were still not that impressed. But Lancelot, Lancelot basked in Lionel's unwavering admiration and the slightly more begrudging but still genuine gratitude of the other knights he had freed. Lancelot looked and felt, oh so cool. Then he noticed someone. Hang on, is that, is that Sir Kay? Kay, this is where you are. Oh my god, he got you? Well, that's why you're here, yes? Arthur sent you to find me? (laughs) <laughs> That's a good one. We thought you'd gone the loo, you know, for months. Kay glowered. Well, fellow knights, said Lancelot, I hope we've all learned a valuable lesson from this. Um, The various former captives scratched their heads. Don't take on really big opponents if you're not that good a knight. Oh, oh, is it that we should make Panini sticker-type albums of knights, both to capitalise on this collecting trend and also to direct the obsession of any other dangerous knights into a more healthy place? We could make foils with those cool holograms. Good ideas both, but no. It is that Lancelot is the bravest, the best, the downright sexiest knight in all the land. Now back to King Arthur with that message, all of you. Nope, not you, Lionel. You're coming with me. We're off to have other adventures. Yes, sir. And the knights departed. Tarquin's long-suffering staff, not long after that, and the fort to castle conversion fell into an increasing state of disrepair. What locals remained knew only that the place was Tarquin's castle, and that was the name with which it became known as many centuries passed. And eventually, the place where it stood would become the centre of the greatest city in the north. As for Lancelot and Lionel, well, far more adventures awaited them. There's a whole bunch of stories to tell there, and maybe one day I'll even get around to it. Okay, folks, that's that. Two very different stories there. Let's turn to the first odd little tale. This is possibly particularly peculiar when you consider its source, which is an 1844 book called Passages in the Life of a Radical by Samuel Bamford. And it's strange because this is an autobiographical book. Everything in it is supposed to have happened. Samuel Bamford was an interesting chappie, a poet of some modest success, and, as suggested by the title of his book, he was a radical associated with left-wing causes, and he was actually at the famous Peterloo Massacre and was indeed imprisoned after it. 
Now, following this, he became strongly of the opinion that the radical movements had become too violent, while still very much pushing for reform. This was an opinion which, of course, put him at odds with some of his fellows in his later life. Now, he doesn't actually relate the story as happening to him. Nope, he says that he was told it by main character George Plant, when both of them were in prison together, before the man disappeared. And in this otherwise factual book, which in part gives some fairly harrowing descriptions of various injustices, it's certainly an oddity. An oddity which doesn't seem to have any obvious precursor. It's possible that Bamford, or indeed Plant, were riffing on existing folklore of the area, but we don't have any earlier records of this tale. Now, there is a slightly earlier story about the clough, the one that tells the tale of the Boggart, unsurprisingly, and that is written by my friend and yours, and folklore inventor, John Roby. See the Phantom Horseman episode for one of his stories. Now, Dr. Kerry Holbrook, who has looked into the folklore of Boggart Hole Clough in some depth, notes that, by Roby's own admission, he just copied a different Boggart story and put it into the clough, which, given the name, I think, makes some sense. By the way, it was thanks to Kerry's work that you've got this story, as I was about to steam right ahead with Roby's stolen Boggart tale before her writing put me onto this much more unique one. And I really like this story. Anything that hints at other worlds and the like is right up my alley, and the inclusion of a cunning man in the story, well, that's really the icing on the cake, especially a cunning man with such a great name. Now, to Seeding Ferns and St John's Eve. St John's Eve, by the way, is much more widely known as Midsummer's Eve. It's not mentioned in the story as such, so I didn't reference it, but this idea of it as the shortest day of the year connects it to magic. The idea of fern seeds on St John's Eve does indeed crop up elsewhere. It wasn't entirely made up for this story. And there are typically two ways that seeding ferns are used. The one that we saw, and a slightly different one, where indeed the fern seeds still have to be obtained at midnight without touching the plant, which explains that little ceremony. But then they are used to make somebody invisible. Unfortunately, the implication of this is that the individuals, the men, who seek the power of invisibility might want this also for the purposes of getting closer, shall we say, to a lady. So as with our stories, they are kept as a magical ingredient, but with a different outcome. Though this isn't the only instance we have where fern seed is used to win over a woman, and no lesser figure than Puck is stated to have used it for such a purpose. So there's a long connection between St. John's Eve, Fernseed, and the fairy world brought together in this story. Now it could have been a piece of genuine local folklore, one with a long tradition behind it. However, the specificity of this particular tale does make me feel that this is much more likely a literary creation. But clearly the place was much associated with spirits and with the other world, I think. That's not in doubt, however embellished this version is. And this is possibly my favourite type of folk story. I really enjoy the idea of a fairy world close to ours with its mysterious inhabitants, which may be crossed at times of year when the borders between the worlds weaken. And this tale also does a great job of showing the changeable nature of the creatures that inhabit it, beautiful and dangerous in equal measure. And it's a 
great modern example of such a fairy tale. And, let's face it, it's got a flying, shrieking, light-emitting skull in it, which is brilliant. I'll talk about the Tarquin story a bit less. There's just so much to say about Arthurian legend as a whole, and I'm not really going to attempt that. The version of the Tarquin story I told was my own combination of the best bits from a ballad which was doing the rounds in the 18th century, and from the much earlier version from Thomas Mallory's 15th century, the Mort d'Arthur, which was basically a published collection of Arthurian legends, all woven together with Mallory's narrative, which has become one of, if not the most famous, Arthurian texts today. Now in Le Mort d'Arthur, it's not stated where Tarquin's castle was. John Whittaker, an 18th century historian who wrote a two-volume history of Manchester, places Tarquin's castle on Castlefield at the Fort of Mamusium. But from what I can tell, and I'll admit I've not gone very far into this one, it does seem like he was just finding rationalisations of an existing local tradition that goes back to quite a bit before that. And that's where I kind of stop. The association is old and, I will claim, lost in the mists of time. Though actually, I didn't really dig very deep in this one. But yes, for whatever reason, the two are definitely very linked now. Sir Tarquin as a Saxon, who came to Manchester, occupied the old fort, and then collected knights. And that's about all I've got to say for that one, except to read you the first verse of the ballad as... Oh my goodness, it's a cracking one. I have a particular soft spot for some of the rhymes in these old ballads. So, this is how it starts. Within this ancient British land, in Lancashire, I understand, near Manchester there lived a knight of fame, of prodigious strength and might, who vanquished many a worthy knight, a giant great, and Tarquin was his name. I love the repetition of knight in that, just seamless. Next episode we'll be back in Manchester with probably only three stories. I did want to fit some other stuff in here at the end of the episode but that's going to have to wait till then because well look at the time would you? But I do want to give a massive shout out to the people who have followed me on Patreon since the last episode. That is Adele, Alistair and David. Thank you so much, it really means a hell of a lot to me. There are currently three members episodes available for patrons, and I've started work on the fourth already. Given my release schedule, donations are only taken when a new members episode actually comes out. Okay, that's it. I hope you can join me again next time when we'll actually get around to talking about that mummy that I teased at the end of the last episode. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. <laughs>